Section 2 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynette Calkins, Monument, Colorado. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha Von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 1, Part 2. On my eighteenth birthday, I was married after having been first introduced into society and presented to the empress on my engagement. After our wedding, we went for a tour in Italy. For this purpose, Arno had got a long leave of absence. Of retirement from the military service, nothing was ever said. It is true we both possessed a tolerable property, but my husband loved his profession, and I agreed with him. I was proud of my handsome hussar officer, and looked forward with satisfaction to the time when he would rise to the rank of major, colonel, even general. Who knows, perhaps he might even be called to a higher fortune. Perhaps he might shine in the glorious history of his country as a great military commander. That the red volumes exhibit a break just during the happy wedding time and the honeymoon is now to me a great grief. The joys of those days would indeed have been evaporated, dispersed, scattered to the winds, even if I had entered them there, but at any rate a reflection of them would have been kept bound tight between the leaves. But no, for my grief and my pain I could not find complaints enough, enough dashes and notes of exclamation. All grievous things had to be cried over carefully before the world, present and to come, but the happy hours I enjoyed in silence— I was not proud of my happiness, and so gave no one, not even myself in my diary, any information about it, but sufferings and longings I looked on as a kind of merit, and so made much of them. But how true a mirror these red volumes present of my sad experiences, while in the happy times the leaves are quite blank. It is too silly. It is as if during a walk a man were to make a collection to bring home with him, and to collect of all the things he found by the way, only those that were ugly, as if he filled his botanic case with nothing but thorns, thistles, worms, and toads, and left the flowers and butterflies behind. Still, I recollect that it was a grand time, a kind of fairy dream. I had indeed everything that the heart of a young woman could wish—love, wealth, rank— fortune, and most of it so new, so surprising, so incredible. We loved each other, my Arno and I, devotedly, with all the fire of our youth, abounding as it was in life and scenes of beauty. And it so happened that my darling Hussar was besides a worthy, good-hearted, noble-minded young gentleman, with the education of a man of the world, and a cheerful temper. It happened so, for he might as well, for anything that the ball at Marion bad could testify to the contrary, have been a vicious, rough man. And as it happened also, I was a moderately sensible, good-hearted creature, for he might just as well at the said ball have fallen in love with a pretty, capricious little goose. And so it came about that we were completely happy, and that, as a consequence, the red-bound book of lamentation remained empty for a long while. Stop! Here I do find a joyous entry, raptures over the new dignity of motherhood. On the 1st of January, 1859, was not that a New Year's gift? A little son was born to us. Of course this event awakened in us as much astonishment and pride as if we were the first pair to which anything of the kind had happened. 
and this accounts also for the resumption of the diary. Of this wonder, and of this dignity of mine, the world of the future had to be informed. Besides, the theme, youthful motherhood, is so extremely well adapted for art and literature. It belongs to the class of the best sung and most carefully painted subjects. Besides, it may be treated mystically and sacredly, touchingly and pathetically, simply and affectionately, in short, immensely poetically. To nurse this disposition, all possible collections of poems, illustrated journals, picture galleries, and current phrases of rapture, such as mother's love, mother's happiness, mother's pride, contribute their power, just as the school books do to nurse the admiration for war. The highest pitch of deification which has ever been reached next to the adoration of heroes, see Carlyle's hero worship, is reached by the multitude in baby worship, and of course in this also I was not left behind. My little charming Ruru was to me the mightiest wonder of the world. Ah, my son, my grown-up stately Rudolph, what I feel for you is such that against it that childish baby wonder loses color, against it that blind, apish, devouring love of the young mother is as insignificant as the child himself in swaddling clothes is insignificant by the side of the grown man. The young father was not less proud of his successor, and built on him the fairest schemes for the future. What will he be? This question, not as yet a very pressing one, was nevertheless often discussed over Ruru's cradle, and always decided unanimously, a soldier. Sometimes it awoke a weak protest on the mother's part. But suppose he should meet with any accident in a war? Ah, oh, bah, was the answer to this objection. Everyone must die when and where it is appointed him. Ruru was also not to remain the only son. Of the following sons, one might, please God, be brought up as a diplomatist, another as a country gentleman, a third as a priest. But the eldest, he must choose his father's and grandfather's profession, the noblest profession of all. He must be a soldier. And so it was settled. Ruru, as soon as he was two months old, was promoted by us to be Lance Corporal. Well, as all crown princes immediately they are born are named proprietors of some regiment, why should not we also decorate our little one with an imaginary rank? It was only a regular joke, this playing at soldiers with our baby. On April 1, as the third monthly recurrence of his birthday, for to keep only the anniversaries would have given too few opportunities for festivity, Ruru was promoted from Lance Corporal to Corporal. But on the same day there happened also something more mournful, something that made my heart heavy and obliged me to relieve it into the red volumes. There had been now for a long time a certain black point visible on the political horizon, about the possible increase of which the liveliest commentaries were made in all journals and at all private parties. I had up to that time thought nothing about it. My husband and my father and their military friends might have often said in my hearing, There will soon be something to settle with Italy. But it glanced off my understanding. I had little time or inclination to trouble myself about politics, so that, however eagerly people about me might debate about the relations between Sardinia and Austria, or the behavior of Napoleon III, of whose help Cavour had assured himself by taking part in the Crimean War, or however constantly they might talk about the tension which this alliance had called forth between us and our Italian neighbors, I took no notice of it. 
But on April 1, my husband said to me very seriously, Do you know, dear, that it will soon break out? What will break out, darling? The war with Sardinia. I was terrified. My God, that would be terrible. And will you have to go? I hope so. How can you say such a thing? Hope to leave your wife and child? If duty calls. One might reconcile oneself to it, but to hope, which means wish, that such a bitter duty should arise. Bitter? A rattling jolly war like that must be something glorious. You are a soldier's wife. Don't forget that. I fell on his neck. Oh, my dear husband, be content. I also can be brave. How often have I sympathized with the heroes and heroines of history? What an elevating feeling it must be to go into battle. If I only might fight, fall, or conquer at your side. Bravely spoken, little wife. But nonsense. Your place is here, by the cradle of the little one, who also is to become a defender of his country when he is grown up. Your place is at our household hearth. It is to protect this and guard it from any hostile attack, to preserve peace for our homes and our wives that we men have to go to battle. I don't know why, but these words, which, or something of the same sort, I had often before heard and read with assent, this time seemed to me to be in a sense mere phrases. There was certainly no hearth menaced, no horde of barbarians at the gate, merely a political tension between two cabinets. So if my husband was all on fire to rush into the war, it was not so much from the pressing need of defending his wife, child, and country, but rather his delight in the march out, which promised change and adventure, his seeking for distinction and promotion. Oh, yes, was my conclusion from this train of thought. It is ambition, a noble, honorable ambition, delight in the brave discharge of duty. It was good of him that he was rejoicing in the chance of being obliged to take the field, for as yet there was assuredly no certainty. Perhaps the war might not break out at all, and even in case they came to blows, who knows whether it would be Arno's fate to be sent off. The whole army does not always see the enemy. No, this splendid, perfect happiness which fate had just built as a snug house for me, it was impossible that the same fate should roughly shatter it to pieces. Oh, Arno, my dearly loved husband, it would be horrible to know that you are in danger. These and similar outpourings fill the leaves of the diary which were written in those days. From this period, the red volumes are full for some time of political stuff. Louis Napoleon is an intriguer. Austria cannot long be only a spectator. It is coming to war. Sardinia will be frightened at our superior power and give in. Peace is going to be maintained. My wishes, despite of all theoretical admiration of the battles of the past, were of course secretly directed to the preservation of peace, but the wish of my spouse called openly for the other alternative. He did not say anything out plainly, but he always communicated any news about the increase of the black spot with sparkling eyes, while, on the contrary, he always took note of such peaceful prospects as occurred now and then, but alas, they became always rarer, with a kind of dejection. My father also was all on fire for the war. To conquer the Piedmontese would be only child's play, and, in support of this assertion, the Radetsky anecdotes were poured out again. I heard the impending campaign talked about always from the strategic point of view, in other words, a balancing of the chances on the two sides, 
how and where the enemy would be routed, and the advantages which would thereby accrue to us. The humane point of view, namely, that whether lost or won every battle demands innumerable sacrifices of blood and tears, was quite left out of sight. The interests which were here in question were represented as raised to such a height above any private destiny that I felt ashamed of the meanness of my way of thinking if at times the thought occurred to me, ah, what joy do the poor slain men, the poor cripples, the poor widows get out of the victory? However, very soon the old schoolbook dithyrams came in again for an answer to all these despairing questionings. Glory offers recompense for all. Still, suppose the enemy wins. This question I propounded in the circle of my military friends, but was ignominiously hissed down. The mere mention of the possibility of a shadow of a doubt is in itself unpatriotic. To be certain beforehand of one's invincibility is a part of the soldier's duties, and therefore, in her degree, of those of a loyal wife of a lieutenant. My husband's regiment was quartered in Vienna. From our home there was a view over the Prater, and from the window there was such a lovely promise of summer over everything. It was a wonderful spring. The air was warm and redolent of violets, and the fresh foliage sprouted out more early than in other years. I was amusing myself without any anxiety over the great processions in the Prater, which were planned for the following month. We had, for this purpose, procured a tasty little equipage, a break with a four-in-hand team of Hungarian horses. Even already in this splendid April weather, we kept driving almost daily in the alleys of the Prater, but that was only a foretaste of the pleasure peculiar to May. Ah, if the war had not broken in on all that! Now, thank God, at last this uncertainty is at an end, cried my husband one morning, April 19th, on coming home from parade. The ultimatum has been sent. I shrieked out, "'Eh, what? What does that mean?' "'It means that the last word of the diplomatic formalities, "'the one which precedes the declaration of war, has been spoken. "'Our ultimatum to Sardinia calls on Sardinia to disarm. "'She, of course, will take no notice of it, "'and we march across the frontier.' "'Good God! But perhaps they may disarm?' "'Well, then, the quarrel would be at an end, and peace would continue.' "'I fell on my knees.' I could not help it. Silently, but still as earnestly as if with a cry, there rose the prayer from my soul to heaven for peace, peace. Arno raised me up. My silly child, what are you doing? I threw my arms round his neck and began to weep. It was no burst of pain, for the misfortune was certainly as yet not decided on, but the news had so shaken me that my nerves quivered, and that caused this flood of tears. Martha! "'Martha, you will make me angry,' said Arno reproachfully. "'Is this being my brave little soldier's wife? "'Do you forget that you are a general's daughter, "'wife of a first lieutenant, and,' he concluded with a smile, "'mother of a corporal?' "'No, no, Arno, I do not comprehend myself. "'It was only a kind of seizure. "'I am really myself ardent for military glory, "'but I do not know how it is.' A little while ago everything was hanging on a single word, which must by this time have been spoken, yes or no, in answer to this ultimatum as it is called, and this yes or no is to decide whether thousands must bleed and die, die in these sunny happy days of spring. And so it came over me that the word of peace must come, 
and I could not help falling on my knees in prayer. To inform the Almighty of the position of affairs, you dear little goose. The house bell rang. I dried my eyes at once. Who could it be so early? It was my father. He rushed in all in a hurry. Now, children, he cried, all out of breath, throwing himself into an armchair. Have you heard the great news? The ultimatum. I have just told my wife. Tell me, dear Papa, what you think, I asked anxiously. Will that prevent the war? I am not aware that an ultimatum ever prevented a war. It would indeed be only prudent of this wretched rabble of Italians to give in and not expose themselves to a second Novara. Ah, if good Father Radetsky had not died last year, I believe he would, in spite of his ninety years, have put himself again at the head of his army, and, by God, I would have marched along with him. We too have, I think, shown already how to manage these foreign scum, but it seems they have not yet had enough of it, the puppies. They want a second lesson. All right, our Lombardo-Venetian kingdom will get a handsome addition in the Piedmontese territory, and I already look forward to the entry of our troops into Turin. But, Papa, you speak just as if war were already declared, and you are glad of it. But how if Arno has to go too? And the tears were already in my eyes again. That he will too, the enviable young fellow. But my terror, the danger, eh, what? Danger? A man may fight and not be slain, as the saying goes. I have gone through more than one campaign, thank God, and been wounded more than once, and yet I am all alive, just because it was ordained that I should live through it. The old fatalist way of talking, the same as prevailed to settle Ruru's choice of a profession, and which even now appeared to me again as quite philosophical. Even if it should chance that my regiment is not ordered out, Arno began. Oh, yes, I joyfully broke in. There is still that hope. In that case, I would get exchanged if possible. Oh, it will be quite possible, my father assured him. Hess is to receive the command-in-chief, and he is a good friend of mine. My heart trembled, and yet I could not help admiring both the men. With what a joyful equanimity they spoke of a coming campaign, as if it were only a question of some pleasure trip that had been arranged. My brave Arno was desirous, even if his duty did not summon him, to go and meet the foe, and my magnanimous father thought that quite simple and natural. I collected myself, away with childish, womanish fear. Now was the time to show myself worthy of this, my love, to raise my heart above all egotistic fears and find room for nothing but the noble reflection. My husband is a hero. I sprang up and stretched out both my hands to him. Arno, I am proud of you. He put my hands to his lips, then turned to Papa and said, with a face radiant with joy, You have brought the girl up well, father-in-law. Rejected. The ultimatum rejected. This took place at Turin, April 26. The die is cast. War has broken out. End of section 2